0: Welcome to Hence the Future podcast. I'm Justin Clark.
1: I'm Adam Cronin.
0: And today we're discussing the future of warfare. So we'll discuss all different types of warfare. We'll get into cyber war, space war, nuclear war, information war. Uh, We'll talk about autonomous weapons, a little bit of game theory, among some other topics. But first, let's start with you, Adam and maybe explain the concept of the gray zone.
1: Yeah, so I love this concept of the gray zone because it really encapsulates the current state that we're in when it comes to war. So, you know, the, the former state of affairs was that there was mutually assured destruction, right? So we had nuclear bombs, other countries had nuclear bombs, and yeah. then there were all these books written about the end of history, and people thought that it was just going to sort of be this nice utopia world because we all realize mm. we can destroy each other. However, what ended up happening is people realized there's a lot of wiggle room in the middle because you're not going to spark a nuclear conflict over just anything. So right. to put a real definition to it, the gray zone is a state of affairs where nations use intimidation and coercion in the space between war and peace. And you, know, you can see this right now. Every single day, there are hackers that hack into the U.S. government. Mm-hmm. Or and, at least attempt to. Right. I, I think I, I saw a number that there's over 1 billion infiltrations in national security systems in the past year. Not ours, but like globally. Wow. So, and there, bef- the year before that, it was like 250 million. So just the rate at which we're passing the line that many would consider yeah. to be like... An act of war—it's just happening many, many times per day. Um, right. So that's on the cyber that's on like the, you know, the cyber front, and then yeah. the information front is also happening every day. I mean, you know, you can see that with, you know, Russia hacking America's elections, or you know, recently there was even uh, Iran tried to hack into Trump's uh, email through Microsoft. <laughs> because the, <laughs> Iran doesn't like what Trump has been doing. Okay. Um, and there's, there's, just all, there's just so many examples of, and, or you can look at Syria as another example, but there are so mm-hmm. many conflicts that are happening between this area of peace and war that defines mm-hmm. the gray zone. So right. when we look towards what is gonna happen in the future, part of the big question is, what are the specific types of acts that could trigger something greater, like something beyond? Like, what would it take for the current state to escalate to a state where there's actual, you know, war between great superpowers? Mm -hmm. Um, That's an open question, but if you you have any credence in the Bulletin of Atomic Scientists who put out the Doomsday Clock reading every year, according to them we are 2 minutes to midnight which is the closest we've been since 1953 wow. shortly after world war 2 when the when the you know cold war was really at its height at its scariest hmm. moments
0: so do you think do you agree with that because like my own personal opinion is there's so much to lose and there's so many nuclear weapons out there like mm-hmm. there's I would be very surprised if anything were to happen between superpowers. I think the only thing that I could see where nuclear bombs are used in war again is if some ideological group, let's say ISIS, gets a hold of them where the likely outcome, which is mutually assured destruction, is welcomed right? Like the ISIS doesn't care if they destroy themselves as long as they destroy everything else. So that that's the only type of, you know, that's the only type of um, organization that I could see, you know, using nuclear bombs and being happy with the outcome.
1: Totally. Yeah. I mean, I think the, the likelihood of a, na- a true nation state saying we're going to nuke you and then they nuke you is just so unlikely, but there's, I mean, Part of what defines the gray zone is you can do all of these things without it being obvious that you're the one that's doing it. So, for uh-huh. instance, like, you know, Iran bombed the Saudi oil field. It's still not 100% clear that it was Iran, and it was just some small drone that infiltrated this like multi-billion dollar defense system. Mm-hmm. And, you know, that that was something that was or or another example is, you know, in Crimea, Russia put their, quote-unquote, little green men to invade the Crimean Peninsula, and they didn't have Russian badges, so they had plausible deniability. And so whenever any nations get angry, they can just say, oh, it wasn't really us. And that's sort of what happens with cyber, because it's really easy to sort of cover your footprints with cyber compared to other domains. VPNs
0: or anything else.
1: Yeah, Yeah,
0: it seems like there's really arise in just obfuscation of your tactics, you know, if you're, if you're fighting against someone else in, you can kind of, you know, hide who the, who the perpetrator is, you, you can hide that you're orchestrating things so that you could in physical warfare, maybe you hire mercenaries, And And in cyber warfare, you use VPNs and a whole bunch of proxies and stuff. So it's hard to trace back where, you know, this attack originated from.
1: Exactly. And the use of mercenaries has been rising dramatically. If you look at the there's some really great charts that show the number of conflicts that are state versus state versus a regional conflict that's backed by big states and powers versus like a pure regional conflict, and there's just far more proxy battles where it's like, we're not directly fighting against Russia, we're not directly fighting against China, but we're doing all of these proxy battles in places like Syria and Yemen, and many of them are with mercenary soldiers that aren't, you know, by definition, American soldiers. I mean, usually it's not as, I mean, it, America does this too, but it's, it's all countries that have been you know, following this trend.
0: Yeah, yeah I was actually curious who like I thought mercenaries were just th- this thing of movies right That you'd, you know countries would hire mercenaries or com- right, big right. rich corporations would hire mercenaries to do their bidding um, but I didn't realize like the U.S. is they never signed uh, I forgot exactly what the treaty was but them the U.S. the U.K. like some really major countries are still allowed to use mercenaries and I just I thought it was illegal and not even um something that happened before oh totally researching for this
1: yeah i mean a lot of these guys are ex-special forces and yeah they just and get hired scary. to do these covert ops and then you know if something bad happens it's not like you know america did an act of war it's it's more like oh some mm-hmm. mercenaries did something and it's far less of a big deal yeah um,
0: and if you have a team of mercenaries that are, let's say, Australian Special Forces, English Special Forces, and you just have this diverse group, then you really have a hard time telling who, you know, who the perpetrator is. Now, if you have a whole bunch of, like, U.S. ex-Navy SEALs that are in, you know, some mercenary group, then maybe it's a little bit easier to figure out who, you know, who sent these these soldiers, Mm -hmm.
1: but... Well, know. and and even if it's super clear like okay, these are obvious. This is obviously an American act cuz they're all former Navy SEALs. We're still living in this new era where you can pretty much deny anything and there's no yeah. shared set of facts that everyone has. And especially when you think about like what's the difference between, you know, the state of affairs in the US as opposed to China? So much of it's about the flow of information and controlling the narrative. So mm-hmm you know, with the Hong Kong protests, which we had a an episode dedicated to mm-hmm. that, it was very clear that, uh, you know, China is essentially blaming a lot of these protests on Western uh, antagonism. And basically like the West is egging on these protesters, which there's absolutely no evidence of that. In fact, you know, Trump, mm-hmm. the Trump administration has done all they can to stay out of it, as have American corporations. But that's yeah. what the story is. If you're if you're in mainland China, that's what you think is the truth. Um, And, you know, this this brings up really the greatest question in my mind in this whole future of war episode, which is, is war between the U.S. and China inevitable? Because as you look at all the different players, you know, of course, there's Russia and Iran and, you know, all these other players, but it's really like comes down to two sort of models for civilization. One is more of an authoritarian model that controls information. And the other is, you know, what has been the sort of democratic capitalist model that we have and that the West has. And Mm -hmm. it's worth noting that we're in a state of affairs where almost inevitably China will surpass the U.S. The economy has already surpassed the U.S and Mm -hmm. fairly soon they'll surpass the U.S. in almost all dimensions. So, and then when you look at history, there have been 16 times in recorded history where a rising power has overtaken a ruling power. 12 of those 16 times, war ensued between those two powers. So the odds are in favor of there being a conflict. And I don't know if you've, if you've heard about, you know, President Xi's sort of long term plan for China. But essentially, by 2025, China plans to be the leader in ten high tech industries, including yeah, yeah, yeah. robotics, AI, quantum computing, nuclear and others. Okay. By yep. 2035, China plans to be the global leader in all advanced technologies so like maybe we still have like the best netflix content but china's like leading <laughs> in all the stuff that really matters for the future of civilization yeah. and then by 2049 which is the 100 year anniversary of the founding of the people's republic of china china plans to be simply number 1 in all categories which includes an unchallenged army military force and that's the 100 you know that's the 100 year anniversary and that's 30 years from now. You know, I'll be 58 at that time. Mm-hmm. Just to put in context, 30 years ago, the World Wide Web hadn't even been invented. So a lot can change in 30 years. And when you think about the likelihood of China achieving those goals, they've pretty much hit all of the milestones that they've set for themselves. And I saw this one video that just compared how efficient China is compared to the US with its infrastructure and they showed this one bridge that was built in Boston that took 4 years to build cuz it's all, you know just typical bureaucratic american mm-hmm. like helping your brother-in-law they get paid by the hour like you know typical yeah. american business government stuff yep in china a similar bill bridge took 43 hours to build so four, 43 hours versus 4 years to build a bridge and It's just the level of efficiency is so much greater in China because they just straight up control like pretty much everything that happens in their country. So if you're trying to consider the likelihood of China meeting its future goals of surpassing us in first the top 10 areas of technology, then all areas of technology, then everything, including military, it seems closer to the likely scenario than not, at least in my view.
0: Yeah. So I have um, one. So I have one piece of hope regarding okay. the China growth, and I think that China is definitely good at executing things where there is a plan and there is a known set of like there's a known recipe to do this thing, like build a bridge, like build a city. What I don't think China will necessarily beat the US at and what I think the US is just like inherently superior at is and just like Western culture yes, innovation. Because we we're not being censored all the time and it's much easier for scientists and people in the United States to understand how the world really works because we're not just being fed propaganda about you know all the
1: things. But I have a counterexample Okay, so okay. how much of an advantage is it if you're spending all these billions of dollars innovating if immediately once you create something worthwhile, it gets copied by China? For instance, this happened just recently with Lockheed Martin's F-35 fighter jet, which is the most mm-hmm. advanced and expensive fighter jet to date. Within okay. like months after this came out, China had hacked into Lockheed Martin's system and essentially stolen the designs and created a very similar plane in China. That's way cheaper to build. Oh, okay. And, uh, so that it's is like a
0: good counter example, because if it, you know, then that, that is, that strikes the, um, the type of war we were talking about at the beginning, which is information warfare, cyber, or not really information, but cyber warfare where it's, mm-hmm. you know, they're trying to hack in. And the, I mean, really what it boils down to is what is the resource that they're going for and in this cyber warfare they're just going they're just fighting for information like mm-hmm. the information we have and if they're getting the information successfully and that's pretty much all they need i suppose you know if they have the plans and they don't even need to go through the whole innovation process
1: Right, you know, I, right.
0: I, you know, I think you changed my mind just now. You know, that's
1: <laughs> Yeah, man. I wish I. I wish I thought there was more of an advantage to our innovative, n- nature, yeah. and maybe Unless we we will... just had better security, like right. that's the only thing. Well, I did hear about there's these, there's these new security systems that are basically, like a, like a fake system that once infiltrated. The enemy thinks they've infiltrated your actual system, but instead you've sort of set up uh, this like prop. So, for instance, it, you know, typical hack, one way to get in is you just dump a bunch of USB drives in front of their, you know, <laughs> the Pentagon or whatever, which is a, which actually allowed China to infiltrate our, or no, this was actually sorry, this was a Russia infiltration that happened, uh, New York Times reported. Mm-hmm. And You know, that's that's one way to get in. And then once they're in, they can basically see like CEO level access of everything that's going on within that system. But one way to counter that is you have a front. So they think they're seeing all the emails back and forth. But what they're really seeing is this like fake setup that we've put in there. And that allows us to essentially spy back at them. And we can even feed them like the wrong information and that kind of thing. So there are some countermeasures with cybersecurity and the U.S. has gotten much better with cybersecurity. This is actually one of the things that I like that President Trump has done is he did, uh, issued an executive order to uh, have more capabilities of cyber command in the U.S. He also established the Space Force. I think both of those things are, are uh, necessary mm-hmm. given the current state of affairs. Mm-hmm. But part of what uh, at least through my research, I found is that with cyber war, it's pretty much a standoff, meaning we know we can shut down Russia's power grid. We also know Russia can shut down our power grid, therefore we're not going to do it to them because they they could just do it to us. And this tends to be the state of affairs with all major powers that have lots of cyber capabilities. Mm-hmm. So the cyber war is just something that's constant and it's sort of like something we always know we could go to that level, but we don't want to unless we really have to, because especially because the US has different moral standards, we know if we shut off the power grid in Russia, many elderly Mm -hmm. people in hospitals will die. And then that doesn't look good for us. Right. Hmm. So
0: back to your question about a war breaking out between U.S. and China, um, couldn't it be argued that one already has broken out? You know, there is sort of this this gray area of right. well, cyber a, war yeah. between between us going on. Um, do you think it will escalate in our lifetimes to a physical war, or will it remain cyber, even if it's more like targeted and you know, catastrophic cyber attacks, right. like the shutting down power grids and stuff. so or, so you
1: know, if you mean if by physical you mean American troops fighting Chinese troops head to head, I would say that's somewhat unlikely. But if it means you know American forces using drones to take out key infrastructure and you know China using cyber, what like there are so many other ways that war could happen. Mm-hmm. Um, and one thing that's interesting when you look throughout history is that, you know, with these 12 of the 16 cases where war has ensued between the rising power and the ruling power, most of the time it's through a third party that actually sparks the conflict. So, you know, Franz Ferdinand getting shot was, uh, you know, famously how the first world war got started. Similarly, you could imagine, for instance, China invading Taiwan or annexing Mm -hmm. Tibet or, you know, North Korea invading South Korea or bombing Seoul or another, another interesting place is there's this thing called the Solwaki Gap. You could actually Hmm. see it in your uh, map behind. If you look at like where Russia is and then Uh where Poland is and your map. But essentially there's this small land in between Poland and the Baltic nations, like Lithuania, Latvia, Estonia. And if Russia basically invaded this little small land area, they could essentially annex all of those Baltic nations that used to be part of the Soviet Union. And there's very little we could do about that. Wow. So if you think the trend of Russia annexing Crimea would continue, which by all appearances, it seems like it will, then that would be an obvious next step for them. Now, another area where it could happen is in the South China Sea. You know, China famously has this nine dash line where they basically say, oh, yeah, we own this whole sea, which is not something that's internationally recognized. But they've basically been arming up these islands and all of Southeast Asia is like freaked out like they like the cheap technology and infrastructure and investments from China, but they're a little freaked out by, you know. So that's another area is what if China just basically said, okay, we own all of Southeast Asia now. And another area that could be the area of conflict is the Arctic. So as we know from our climate episodes, the Arctic is melting, the ice sheets are receding, and therefore there is going to be a new passageway through the north, which is huge for trade, yep, and it's because it's the
0: shortest travel. Like that cuts travel times way down. If you're if you're shipping from, like, the middle of Russia to Canada or something, you know, to the U.S. or something, the the route for that is ridiculously short.
1: Exactly, and there's lots of resources there. So, mm-hmm. these are all areas where conflict could erupt, and it's likely not going to be that China does something directly at the U.S. or vice versa. It's likely going to be some third party. And then the U.S. has to decide how should we respond? How do we respond? And then how that would escalate determines civilization. (laughs) Like what's going to happen to all of us, basically. Oh, man. Um, Yeah.
0: So what do you think are some of these resources that will be fought over in the future? You kind of mentioned the the passageway of the north. but There's also, you know, space and we kind of need, you know, I think it'd be interesting to talk about space a little bit. Who owns the moon? Because there's a space treaty, you know, we're supposedly not going to fight over the moon because we saw what colonization did to um, earthlings. But do you think that'll hold like it, it seems likely that there might be some sort of war? for resources on the moon given how important of er, how important some land would be there for space launches because of the low gravity situation
1: yeah i think that is going to be a big area of conflict however i don't think that's going to happen in the short or medium term Mm -hmm. because i think if any nations just invest so much in trying to take over the moon or defend the moon the opportunity cost of them not Dealing with the territory on Earth is going to be mm-hmm. too great, at least in the 21st century is my basic prediction. Yeah. But on Earth, there are going to be fights over resources. You could argue that the situation in Syria is a result of climate change because there was a massive drought in Syria, mm-hmm. which sparked all of this like uprising and little yeah. wars. And now look at, the, look at what's going on. I mean, we have all of these different nations doing proxy battles there it's very unclear. You know, we just pulled out, the Kurds are getting bombed. There's ISIS is potentially reemerging. It's like, there's so much bad stuff happening there. And it's just like mm-hmm. the, the tip of the iceberg of climate change, like how climate change is going to strain resources oh, yeah. going forward. You know, what India, happens when
0: it wipes out some of the biggest cities? Like let's say sea levels rise a little bit and, you know, people have to flee to the center, the center parts of countries.
1: Yeah. So you know, for instance, it's going to
0: be a huge population flow to the middle.
1: Right. So we've talked about how Malaysia is going to be completely underwater
0: mm-hmm. by the
1: end of the century. Lots of Southeast Asia is at risk. That may result in China just saying, hey, we'll save you guys, but we own you now. <laughs> like, oh, you know? God. Um, yeah. And yeah, I mean, climate change is a very serious driver of conflict in the future also between India and Pakistan, two nuclear-armed nations. And mm-hmm. they are right now fighting over an area, Kashmir, which mm. has a lot of the mountains that collect water, and then that water melts on the ice, and it provides a lot of the fresh water for both India and Pakistan. So you could see them fighting over that. And I was I was talking to Kip about this, and he was saying that even if Like there was a local nuclear battle between India and Pakistan that didn't go to other countries. Like it's not a world war. It's just a local war. Even Mm -hmm. that could spark a runaway climate change event where the earth is now warming a lot faster than previously. And then that creates even more uh, conflicts over Mm -hmm. resources. You know, the Middle East is already a place that's very dangerous. Lots of wars are happening there. But if you look at the projections of climate change, you're not going to be able to even live there in the summer because the heats will be beyond mm-hmm. a level that the human body is able to regulate its, tem- mm-hmm. its own temperature. Oh, so it's, yeah. yeah it's,
0: I mean, that fresh water resources, land, I, I, I don't know how important fresh water will be is, you know, if technology progresses enough, hopefully we can. Yeah. Desalination,
1: desalination is desalination. the big. Yeah. But, the, yeah, but like
0: desalination doesn't happen, you know, that's right.
1: But that's even if it happens and it will, because Israel's already doing it, mm-hmm. it's still going to be something that only wealthy countries can afford and only wealthy True, people yeah. within poor countries can afford
0: and so, what happens when you're landlocked you know if you're in the middle of a country and you don't really have that many natural water resources do you have to like buy like do you have to import fresh water from countries that are on the coast if there are no water resources like and if that's the case right. what's the relationship between this country that doesn't have water resources and the other because it's totally dependent then that you know that kind of gets into the whole game theory thing like how, how do you position yourself as a country going forward in the context of all of the things that are changing.
1: Yeah, yeah, there's going to be a lot of desperate people on both mm-hmm. sides. And, yeah, I find the game theory particularly interesting in space, which we touched on a little bit, because, okay. so, when you think about how the United States operates its military globally, it's all dependent on satellites. There's very little we could do without satellites and when you just think of where we are in the U.S. on the globe and where we're having these these troops like for instance in Syria we need a satellite to be able to reach those troops but oftentimes if it's that far away from the U.S. we would actually need to ping two different satellites to reach them Oh, okay. but that creates a time lag which is a serious uh, disadvantage when you're in, like, you know, moment to moment combat situations. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. what's even more important is that we have bases all over the globe that allow us to communicate with just one satellite so we can very quickly take control of, of our forces wherever they are in the world.
0: Hmm. And
1: the US has over 800 military bases around the world. In almost more than half of the countries in the world, there's a US military base. And a lot of people wow. don't realize this, but we never pull out mm-hmm. of countries once we quote unquote win the war. We just stay there. We still have a major base in Germany. We have mm-hmm. major bases in Japan. Like everywhere we go, we just keep a base there because we realize that we're in this sort of infinite game. It's not like mm-hmm. we can you can ever really win a war. And so the, the question arises of, What if our satellite capabilities got taken out? And that's been an increasing worry among military officials, because Hmm. it's fairly easy to take out satellites, because remember, even if you like flipped a penny in outer space, it's going to like have so much momentum and inertia that it'll just go straight through steel.
0: Oh, yeah. I mean, even if you just keep a penny, if you were to just drop a penny without moving, obviously, you would have to not be orbiting, you know, there are complexities to this. But the orbit the the how fast these satellites are moving are like 1000s of miles an Mm -hmm. hour. If that just hits a penny, it'll go the penny will just seemingly shoot straight through it, even though the satellite was the thing that's going super fast. So you could just throw debris up there. And like, oops, accidentally destroyed a satellite.
1: And yeah, well, that is the biggest deterring factor for why people don't do that is that it Mm. creates all this space junk. So if you're China and you shoot some bullets at a a U.S. satellite, the satellite's going to get destroyed pretty easily. But then you have these bullets orbiting around thousands of miles an hour. They're going to hit your satellites. So that whole orbit is going to be pretty useless. Now, they are looking into lasers because lasers have the benefit of being environmentally friendly. (laughs) Meaning you can essentially incinerate something and then there's just heat release. There's no like, you know, there's no junk or empty bullet cases and that kind of thing. The problem with lasers is that it only makes sense to shoot them over short distances because it requires so much energy that you can't really shoot them long distances. So when we talk about like what would space battle be like, it's likely going to be very long range battles. Like you're not gonna have spaceships right next to each other. Because you yeah. can sense other ships It's not on gonna radar. be like Star Wars. Not it's not gonna be like Star Wars at all. <laughs> it's mostly gonna be ships very far away from each other that can track each other from very far away that then shoot these self guiding missiles at each other and then maybe they have laser defense systems so that when something comes up close they can zap those you know those missiles away before they hit their own defenses but even in that case the ships are going to be very very lightly armored because you just can't travel fast in space if you're heavy at all so it's going to be very easy to take out spaceships if you do hit them with anything
0: yeah so do you think that that will happen before us on earth get our shit figured out. You know, if we are are there really going to be space battles before we can, you know, resolve the conflict with us in China, for example, yeah. or or, you know, anything
1: else? Well, Quartz put together this fantastic document on the future of war and they interviewed all of these generals and you know, this just came out like a week ago, so it's very mm-hmm. up to date. And a lot of US generals are very concerned right now about a quote-unquote space Pearl Harbor, meaning what if all of a sudden all of our capabilities just black out because our satellites have been destroyed and we're pretty defenseless? That could happen already, like today. We already know that there are satellites that have been launched by China and other countries that are really just disguised mm-hmm. as satellites, and we perceive them more as weapons in space. There is that deterring factor that we talked about about you don't want to create too much space junk, but it is a move on the chessboard that's possible.
0: Yeah, I and I wonder what the countermeasures to that are. You know, if there are, I would be surprised if the U.S. didn't have like non-satellite based countermeasures to this
1: we do Um, the problem is that all of our missile defense systems to protect us from nuclear bombs are dependent on satellites so let's say let's say for instance there's a scenario where all of a sudden we realize china is about to invade taiwan and just take Mm -hmm. them over and taiwan calls the u.s and they're like we need your help so america launches you know, ships and fighter jets and whatever to basically try to pressure China to stand down. And then in response, China shoots down one of our satellites that makes us not operational in that area. Now, two things could happen. One mm-hmm. is we think, okay, this is just a typical gray zone area aggression. You know, they're not really trying to destroy us. Let's just, mm-hmm. let's just uh, we'll let them take Taiwan because we don't want to go into nuclear war. Or if we had more of a hawk in the White House, it could be perceived as China has taken out our ability to defend ourselves against a nuclear strike by taking out our satellite. Therefore, this is this is the beginning of World War III. We got to yeah nuke them right now because you only have... Because if you think they're going to nuke you, you only have a very small amount of time to respond. Yeah, what
0: is it, like 30 minutes?
1: Yeah, and the other... You know, so now we're getting a little bit into nuclear. I want to talk about that. Mm -hmm. One of the interesting advancements with nuclear technology are these, quote-unquote, supersonic missiles. Now, we've had supersonic missiles for a while, but the difference is that these new supersonic missiles go, you know, more than 10x the speed of sound. So not just a little more than the speed of sound, like way faster than the speed of sound. And they have gliders so, they're able to like twirl around and they don't move in the typical predictable path because almost all of our missile defense systems are based on oh, we see an incoming missile, beep, 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 it's getting closer, it's going in this straight linear path, and then we intercept it. But if you have a program that has some randomization built into it where it just, you know, you know where it's going to end up, but it but how it gets there is somewhat randomized, and it's sort of right. like gliding and swirling around and twisting, and and it's also going more than ten x the speed of sound. Then right. it becomes again almost impossible to defend yourself against them. And these already exist today. Hmm.
0: I wonder if at some point in the future, you know, well, because obviously weapons themselves are advancing pretty, you know pretty steadily but what about defense you know it seems mm-hmm. like you were talking about lasers it seems like that kind of technology could potentially be used for uh, defense as well not just for yeah. attacking and, and you're kind of saying how you could use it as you know a um, missile defense system as in like the missile itself is or a, a rocket itself is defending itself against you know um, other spaceships shoot, it, trying to shoot it down. So right. you could probably use that on a bigger scale to shoot down entire missiles. You know, yeah. if they were strong enough.
1: The difficulty is that it's a lot harder to defend a whole country than to defend a spaceship, just because the amount of area. Like, I'm sure we could implement something that protected DC for sure, but to protect every city city in the U.S. and not just against like you know one missile going to each of those cities but potentially thousands of missiles going to every city just the level of the number of ballistic missiles um you know from a country like china is staggering we know that china has the greatest ballistic missile capability on the planet greater than the u.s wow just as from by the numbers
0: yeah so maybe what could happen is some sort of uh, sensor network so we could and obviously we would need a very sophisticated – maybe this is a very good narrow AI or very good yeah. computer program with a bunch of sensors that could sort of get the lay of the land. Like where are all the missiles? Where does everything need to go? Um, if, right. if the defense um, weapons or you know the defense uh, machines themselves are – cheap enough to make we can at least put them in a bunch of places and coordinate and have one centralized program you know coordinate their defense because they know where everything is which would be pretty cool but again that is not what's that's not uh in our capacity right now
1: yeah by any means well that's interesting you brought that up because one of the solutions that's been proposed for the whole space issue is okay so if it's so easy to take out these satellites why not just have like thousands of satellites that are like like little mini swarm drone kind of guys? So that even mm-hmm. if you destroy one of them, it's like not a big deal because we have so many of them; they're almost disposable.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: So you could do something similar with having a lot of like little sensors around, and you know AI is going to be a huge part of which country is dominant militarily because it's all just there's so many potential things you would want to sense and so many potential machines and military bases and personnel you'd want to control or command Mm -hmm. that it's really is like an information processing and control problem. Yeah, it it is a little worrisome that AI is at the top of that list of the 10 areas that China plans to dominate in by 2025, Mm. which is, you know, almost just like just over five years away
0: yeah are there any uh types of weaponry that don't really exist right now um that are terrifying to you like for example one that terrifies me after watching black mirror are these little baby drones you know like a little insect that can go in and you know have a bunch of pressure go toward you know towards your brain and then you're dead and that's it like where did that thing come from it just looks like a bug it can sneak up on anybody including the president like
1: Right, right. That's that's yeah. Pretty that does scare terrifying. me, and that I would put that under the category of autonomous weapons. Mm-hmm. And this is very terrifying. This whole area. It's worth noting that we already have autonomous weapons. So we already have sentry weapons, which anyone who's played Call of Duty is aware of. <laughs> which is basically you put a sentry in front of like a like a, the entrance of a base and it'll just Mm -hmm. shoot anyone that comes through that's, you know, not a friendly. There's also, um, air defense systems, which we talked about, which basically they identify incoming missiles and then they shoot them down without need human intervention because, you know, humans wouldn't be quick enough to respond anyways. And we also have long range self guiding missiles. Um, I'll, you know, which the a real person has to fire it, but it does the job of actually getting there. Yeah. And then the other thing we have are you know we have autonomous drones, of course, and we also have loitering munitions, which these are interesting because basically it's like you have this drone that's just like hovering over an area. Like let's say there's like a secret meeting of between like ISIS leaders, you just put one of these guys there, and you just program it that if any people that match this facial recognition list come out of there, fire. <laughs> so you would, you like oh, pre-program it what to do, but it carries it out autonomously based on what it recognizes in that situation. Oh, wow. And we're, so we're getting very close to this auto like fully autonomous area. And I I, I find it interesting to look at what's like the current state of consumer technology. Like, And there are these drones (laughs) where it'll literally just automatically follow you around everywhere. And they have this new capability where you basically just push the joystick forward and it'll automatically like uh, avoid any sort of barriers. Like they showed this video of it, like just swerving in between the trees and everything. And no matter how you move your joystick, it will not hit a barrier. And so when you think about like, what is the future of autonomous weapons? Either it's fully autonomous and there's just no qualms about letting machines make any life or death decision that they would need Mm -hmm. to, or there's some, uh, you know, there's some human input that's needed, but it's very just, I don't know what the right word is for it. It's like very much just a matter of course, rather than it being meaningful input like you could yeah. imagine a situation where there's some guy sitting in Oklahoma that you know in some bunker that just like like something lights up and he presses a button and it lights up and he presses a button and just like every time he's just like yeah you know he's basically checking the box of yes we do we do abide by the autonomous you know weapons treaty which doesn't even exist by the way it would be fantastic if there were such a treaty right. but yeah i mean it's not a matter of is it technologically feasible to create autonomous weapons? It's a moral question of, are we willing to as globally? And what happens if, you know, most of us aren't willing to do it, but then some rogue, you know, terror groups or rogue nations do Mm -hmm. implement them. It's a really scary area.
0: Yeah. And you also have to think of the appeal of these sort of weapons too, right? It's not just like, These things are complete evil to everybody because sometimes, if yeah, it saves your your own lives. It say you know if you're an American, it would be you know if you're an American soldier, it would be nice if there was a robot going in for you instead of you. Yeah. So it's you know no one's going to die except for the enemies, and that's appealing to people.
1: That's the other thing is even for the targets at least you know because these systems are more accurate than human beings they're going to have less collateral damage less civilian deaths Mm -hmm.
0: yeah and they can be way more targeted way just super precise obviously you know this is not me like agreeing with a lot of the um aerial you know the drones and the bombings that are going on you know because there are Definitely civi- civilian casualties, but at the same time, it's still a human pulling the trigger. It's it's not that targeted. It's still more targeted than you know, uh, you know, a napalm strike or you know some of these archaic bombing methods that we used to use. But it's still, you know, it's still bad that mm-hmm. there's a lot of these um, civilian casualties. And maybe that's also just the nature of the war that we're fighting in. Uh, the Middle East as well, because it's more of a guerrilla warfare where the insurgents are living among the general populace.
1: Right, right.
0: And that's, that makes it way more likely that there are civilian casualties. And that's what's so hard about this war in particular.
1: Yeah. And this, this also gets into the game theory aspect of it because Mm -hmm. there's this interesting distinction between finite wars and infinite wars where there used to be, finite wars where once you defeat the opposing army, you own that territory and it's Mm -hmm. done, you own it now. But what we've seen, you know, since Vietnam and beyond is that, you know, we thought we were, America thought we were going to go into Vietnam and it was going to be an easy victory, you know, same thing when we went into Iraq. Um, Mm -hmm. But there are no easy victories anymore because when you're fighting against, you know, guerrilla insurgents that are fighting for their lives and for their way of life, they're not going to give up until they're all dead and until the the, ideal, the ideals that they abide by that drive them are also wiped out, which is pretty almost, almost impossible to do. Mm-hmm. So what we find ourselves now is in this new paradigm of infinite wars. And Simon Sinek has this fantastic TED Talk where he talks about this new paradigm. And he says that the big mistake that the U.S. is making is that we're putting our interests ahead of our values, whereas, which is makes sense in a finite war, but in the new infinite war model, it's all about, your best strategy is to put your values first and then your, your uh, interests. So uh, one example is, if, an, if Americans shoot down an enemy combatant and he's still alive, we will actually spend American dollars and use American doctors to bring that enemy back to health, you know, we'll give him our our access to our hospitals and whatever. And that's obviously not in our interest, but it's part of our value system. You know, we don't believe in just killing people once they're injured. That's not part of what it means to be an American. Mm -hmm. And and, uh, that's part of why America is so appealing to so many people around the world, because they view America as or they have viewed America as the good guys that are always going to stand up for these certain ideals. And that's your best strategy in the new paradigm of infinite war. But mm-hmm. what we've been doing recently if we, is we've just been focusing on what are the American interests and we don't really care about our values. Like recently with you know America pulling our troops out of Syria because we don't want to spend money in these like long wars. That's us putting our interests ahead of our values, which is not abandoning our allies who have fought hard for the same ideals yeah. that we care about, the Kurds. And mm-hmm. you see this playing out all over the, the world where America is stopping to do what it had previously done that was in line with its values because it has this new sense of, oh, here, well, well, that's not what's most important for our short term interests. Like, why are we paying all this money? Why are we the watchdogs of the world? yeah. But like it or not, the whole world depends on American hegemony and, and military protection as much yeah. as the dollar, as much as the English language. It's very important.
0: Yeah, I mean, it's it's sometimes a little, you know, Americans can view ourselves as a little bit fucked up because of, you know, there's a lot of bad stuff going on, but at the same time, you know, historically we have been the good guys. We have been able to step in and stamp out, you know, uh, insurgencies in the Middle East, which really don't affect us. Like it's not affecting us nearly as much as it's affecting our allies that that exists. Obviously 9-11, you know, that obviously affected us, but there's, there are situations where we just protect the world, and that's a good situation to be. And I'm, I feel safe as an American, mm-hmm. which you know is sometimes counterintuitive because we've talked about the future of guns. You know, we have our own issues, but yeah. you know, it's it's good to be. I don't feel threatened by other countries. Well, I'll say that, right? Because because of the power and you know this. What do you think? Yeah. Do you think it's good? Like do you, do you yeah, think? Yeah.
1: Well, well, there's this fantastic historical event that I love to think about, which Dan Carlin talks about in Hardcore History, which is that we developed the atomic bomb before any other nations. So we did that to end World War II, but there was a time period of several months where American, America realized that we could have total dominance over the world by preventing anyone else from getting nuclear weapons, meaning we could have nuked Moscow and pretty much preempted the Cold War and nuked anyone else before they got nuclear weapons, and essentially imposed an authoritarian rule over the world for our own you know safety or that's how we would have justified it. but it wasn't part of our value system, so we actually let other countries keep doing their thing and they did uh, you know develop nukes and then you know we eventually signed nuclear disarmament treaties to try to make things a little calmer on the world stage. But mm. it's, re- it's worth noting that we had the opportunity to, like, you know, totally put our boot to the face of the world. And we chose not to. And, yeah. you know, it's not it's, we can't take it for granted that every country that's the world power would act that way. And my yeah. biggest fear is that part of that uh, that view of America as being benevolent is disintegrating. Mm -hmm. and that's overseas too
0: yeah
1: Yeah. because it. it all comes down to are we a good alternative to china and if it's just that well the u.s is kind of fucked up anyways they're corrupt they really just care about themselves they do american isolationism they're you know then it's like well you know we are getting this fantastic offer from china where they say they'll protect us they'll invest all these this money in our infrastructure like you know it becomes something that's a real choice but if america continues to uphold its its real values of freedom of speech freedom of press you know just the individual free will of people then it's not like china versus the us it's the free world versus the authoritarian world which includes the people of China who want not to live under an authoritarian regime. Like it's Mm -hmm. no longer countries battling countries. It's ideals that are intrinsically uh, valuable to human beings versus ideals that are intrinsically not or, or, Mm -hmm. you know, that impose limits on your your own freedom. And Mm -hmm. that's a battle that I'm willing to that I'm willing to say that we would win an ideological battle. Even if the technology is better, you could imagine, you know, the top AI researchers in China at the last minute saying like, you know what, I don't know if we want Beijing to have this power. Maybe let's, you know, reach out to the U.S. similar to how, you know, Einstein and and, uh, Oppenheimer, Mm -hmm. you know, reached out, went to the U.S. side during World War Two, even though like they're German because they realized that they wanted to be on the side of freedom. Yeah, But we're losing that now, and it's scary. And all of these different aspects, I think, are all kind of stemmed from that instability. Mm-hmm.
0: So was that your worst case? Is that one of your
1: worst <laughs> cases? <laughs> well, let's get into it. Let's get into the worst case. Worst case scenario. So my worst case scenario is that we fall into Thucydides trap and Thucydides trap is something that Thucydides remarked on during the rise of Athens when Sparta had previously been the main power in that region. And the quote from Thucydides is that it was the rise of Athens and the fear that this inspired in Sparta that made war inevitable. And so he's speaking to this dynamic where when there's a rising power, the ruling power gets scared and this inevitably leads to war. So my worst case scenario is that that does happen. And I think it will be exacerbated by America filtering through its interests first, which is kind of what the whole America first means, and then its values second or not at all. And then it would be very easy to see how that could take place. So in my worst, worst, worst case, there is some, you know, some third party event happens like the invading of Taiwan or something like that, or they shoot down a satellite or, you know, any any of the number of things we've talked about. And it results in a true World War Three that results in essentially wiping out civilization. I think it's unrealistic to say that everyone would die. But you could imagine us like taking a big step back from the progress we've we've had thus far. Mm -hmm. Like if all the satellites got wiped out, for instance, that alone would be a huge step back. Like you don't have GPS. Like there's a lot of things Mm -hmm. that would be uh, ruined by that. Yeah. You know, bank accounts wiped out, that kind of thing. Um, In my second worst case, like not quite as bad as civilization being wiped out, but still a worst case would be. That China essentially becomes the new dominant power and we find ourselves living in a world that has to adhere to the same censorship policies that are in place in mainland China today. So you could imagine if, let's say, there was some World War III type of event, but America kind of knows it's not going to win and the wealthy people just want to sort of do what's best for themselves and, you know, then we kind of just are like, okay, yeah, China kind of rules things now, you know, maybe we get some little uh, um, concessions that allow us to do things somewhat in our own way, but by and large, China is kind of like the new ruling power of the whole world. Mm -hmm. That would still be really bad just because, you know, there would be far less freedoms, people wouldn't be able to speak their mind, their... You know that would be another worst case in in my mind. Yeah. Um. And yeah, yeah, I mean, like I said, I think I I pretty much said what I wanted to as far as what America needs to do to prevent that. So that's my worst case. I'm interested yeah. to hear yours.
0: Yeah, I think you you covered on a couple that I was thinking. One one that I sort of mentioned early on is my version of humanity being wiped out, and that's. Legitimately, you know, a species ending event, which is nuclear bombs, nuclear warfare, Mm -hmm. but I I don't think that that is remotely likely Until an organization like Isis gets a hold of nukes and a lot of them Um, So that's that's like the ultimate worst case is literally civilization ending, you know Humanity needs to start over from scratch or you know evolution needs to start over from scratch essentially um, so that's that's one uh, worst case. I think another worst case is if war is completely driven by AI and there's no like there's no humanity involved except for mm. the humans dying, right? So I think there's if if you've ever heard uh, Jocko Willing's podcast, so he's a yeah. retired Navy SEAL. He always talks about how war brings out the worst of humanity and the best of humanity and i think that if it was only ai driven there would not be any of the best of humanity that gets you know that gets out during war it's only the worst it's only the killing it's only like the the cold-bloodedness of warfare and i think that's about as bad as it can be in terms of how wars are fought So, Mm -hmm. you know, those are those are the two that are uh, different from what you've said. You touched on a lot of other good things, though. So I'll stick with those for my worst case. Yeah, that's good. What do you think for the best case then?
1: Best case scenario. So my best case scenario is that we avoid Thucydides trap and, you know, that would occur by doing what I've what I've said, where we really stick to our values and we become a legitimate alternative to the model of authoritarian rule that China's been putting forth. Mm-hmm. However, I still think there would be some sort of event that would have to happen to spark us to come together to, as you say, bring out the best in humanity. Mm-hmm. So let's say there was some event, I'm not going to say what it is, but if there was some event that was bad for both the US and China, and it was bad enough that it brought us both to the table where we then put together a new, stronger form of the United Nations, you know, Mm -hmm. like the League of Nations, like the Geneva Convention, something along those lines where we come to an agreement on, okay, you know, here's how the world is gonna be ruled so that it makes sense for all of our conflicting values. And, you know, here's what where the line is as far as information war like you can't hack into elections like this and that here's what it is for you know cyber war like you you can't shut off you know power grids for that that will kill civilians and hospitals you know here's what the rules are for nuclear like if we just have a new agreement that sort of draws out humanitarian lines in the sand Mm -hmm. and then we stick to that and it it's truly signed off on both sides and we can go to the next stage which is a gl- sort of form of global governance which we've talked mm-hmm. about a lot which is necessary for solving a lot of the global problems like ai like climate change mm-hmm. you know like asteroids coming to earth or what you know all of yeah. these big uh, potential yeah. events that is the best case scenario but it it to me it seems unlikely unless there's some triggering event. Like I couldn't imagine us just coming to the table with the way things are now, because there's just game theory doesn't. It just seems like the the temptation to defect from such a treaty would be too great. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah. No. I think that's that's a really uh, good best case maybe you know like you said maybe a little um unlikely but i hope it happens yeah, yeah. Uh, besides you know the the very catastrophically bad thing that brought us together in the first place right you know because like the ideal like true best case is like there's no more war there's no necessary right. there's no necessity for war but obviously that's not that doesn't bring yeah. out an interesting well, conversation. well, one
1: other best case i'll ha- i'll say which is also unlikely is let's say there was a big change of heart in china like let's say the hong kong protests continue to ensue and they actually you know spread to the mainland and then you have a new mm-hmm. leader in china that really does care about freedom mm-hmm. and sort of makes the laws in mainland china similar to what people in hong kong are are asking for then it could you know we could be able to see a China rise above the U.S. without any sort of conflict and with it being because we would have shared values and like Mm -hmm. it would be fine if China rose above the U.S. if we had shared values. The whole issue at hand is that we have very different ideas of how the world the way the world should run.
0: Yeah. Yeah. No, I agree. I think I think that's also um, a good one. So the one one best case that I'll add here is very similar to what you were talking about and it's essentially where the US or some country with values of, you know the Id- idyllic US um, prevails in terms of its superpower. It would almost have the same effect as, you know the Avengers being a thing right <laughs> where we like they fight evil at all costs and they'll right. destroy evil at all costs and like they're there for the little man you know the little guy and will always fight for the good of the people <laughs> you know that kind of you know super, super soldiers super un-
1: like master chief and halo
0: <laughs> yeah yeah exactly so so i think but you know you could have a country that's like that and the us historically had been that country right. i just think in in the best case We, you know, we just have to advance way more quickly than, than Mm -hmm. we currently are. And there is, you know, the talk of, you know, there's a lot of innovation going on in defense because there's so much spending in defense.
1: We're still probably,
0: but at the same time, you also made the point that China is taking a lot of, they're potentially stealing a lot of the, we can
1: no longer outspend China because their economy is bigger. So that worked last century. It's not going to work this century. Mm Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, so that we'll see. I mean, it, again, that best case is not the most likely case by any means. Um, but it would be good if there was some sort of superpower that was so much more dominant than anything else that it could just wipe out evil essentially, mm-hmm. always. You know yeah. that that would. Well, be that good. that could
1: also happen just if we're the first. If if the first benevolent general purpose AI is developed in the U.S. Mm-hmm. that could it's on its own. Yeah. Fill that role.
0: Yeah, I mean, if if general AI is solved, you know that that would basically mean that no war is necessary because we whoever created that AI would win no matter what. Mm-hmm. The, I mean, if you think of if it really was a general intelligence that could right, improve upon right. itself and, you know, innovate at the speed of like 10,000 human years per minute.
1: Right. Exactly. Yeah.
0: So, so yeah, that that would be, and that might be more likely. You know, yeah. The, mm-hmm. That might be the the way that we can get to that level, or quantum computing, for example. Then, then there's no um, security vulnerability, or we can hack anybody. Yeah. Because of, because of the, um, you know, key. Anyways, we talked about how there's like quantum encryption as well as decryption. So right, that probably right. wouldn't be, you know, the, the fix that solves everything. But anyways, I'm curious to know, you know, to round it out, what your likely scenario is.
1: Most likely scenario. My most likely scenario is that China does achieve most of its milestones that it's set forth. So it does become the most dominant in the, the main air you know sectors of technology. Um, you know, like I said, the Chinese economy is greater than the US economy. So our strategy of outspending them and just having many bases around the world with many different proxy battles, it's no longer going to work like it used to because we've really spread ourselves thin, whereas China's mm-hmm. strategy has been more about like, focusing on its own regional security rather than doing stuff on like very disparate places. Although it yep. has been building its own, you know, infrastructure and, you know, mm. their great road that's sort of based on the Silk Road. Yep. So, yeah, I think that in my most likely scenario, the proxy battles do continue and there is some massive event that occurs in our lifetime. And the only reason I have this as, most likely is that when you just look throughout history there has never been a century where great powers haven't fought against each other so really? if that it's, happens I actually didn't know that. in the 20 at least in recorded history maybe yeah, in cavemen caveman yeah, yeah. times or whatever but if the 21st century does not see a great war between the great powers it will be the first century ever for that to have happened so It's hard to say that it's more likely that there isn't a conflict than there is. Mm -hmm. So the real question is, what happens when such an event does take place? How does the world respond? Mm -hmm. And that's something that I don't want to say much about, because it's really up to you, the listener. and just yeah. people in general because and that's why i get i always come back to the values piece of it because even when we talk about these countries and it can feel very abstract and you villainize this country and this country's good and that country's you know somewhere in the middle they're all just people making these decisions at least right now you know that there, there is the whole other can of worms of ai making decisions on its own and autonomous weapons and that's also something we should keep an eye on but at least right now, the most important inputs are real, live human beings who have friends and family and hopes and dreams and worries and frustrations. And if we can stick to our values as Americans in the free world, then I think we are in a far better position, no matter how capable an authoritarian regime is, simply because we have the more favorable ideals. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, that honestly, that's it. That's exactly what uh, my likely was. I, I do think China's going to dominate. But I do think that just the basic nature of the way that freedom, like the effect that freedom has on people, people will fight for that to mm-hmm. the death. Like, if you think that the US will just willy nilly or just willingly fall into an authoritarian regime or follow the rules that China tries to lay out I think there's they've got another thing coming like it will be a fight to the death if that really happens and I think that's where the game theory thing will come into play too like does China really want to take that risk I think the U.S. would rather risk mutually assured destruction than fall into that at least like the way that the way that yeah. the American patriot, you know, the ideal American patriot is like, I would rather die than, you know, fall into your. Give me death you know, or give me freedom. freedom. Exactly. Yeah. So I think I think that might be a good place to wrap
1: it up. Awesome. We're well, thank you about 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 what to our listeners. Happened. This has been what the Future is War, the and what and will inevitably we'll see you next happen. <laughs>
0: Hey, futurists. If you've made it this far, you might be wondering who created the Hence the Future theme song. It was created by the Walden brothers, and you can find them on Spotify. The Walden brothers also produce the sound bites for the worst case, the best case, and the most likely future scenarios. At Hence the Future, we're always looking for ways to improve the quality of our episodes and our predictions. To that end, we're building a team of researchers to curate the most authoritative and highly vetted sources as the foundation for every episode. If you'd like to support these efforts, you can donate a small monthly amount at anchor.fm slash hence the future. And if you haven't done so already, please rate and review the podcast on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. We appreciate your support.